Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Peter Vronsky about American serial killers, the epidemic years 1950 through 2000. If you like my conversation with Peter or any of the authors I have the pleasure of speaking with enough to want to buy the book, I've made it easy for you. Just click on the book title through the episode description, wherever you're listening to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, through Books on Pod, or any other platform, and it takes you to a spot to buy the book through bookshop.org. Now, they don't pay me anything to say this, but I appreciate bookshop.org because it connects readers with their favorite independent bookstores around the country. And for the latest on this podcast, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Books on Pod. This is Kevin Dutton, author of Black and White Thinking, The Burden of a Binary Brain in a Complex World. And you are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Peter Vronsky is an investigative historian and former film and television documentary producer. He's the author of Serial Killers, Female Serial Killers, and Sons of Cain a book that traces the history of serial killers going back to the Stone Age. His newest is titled American Serial Killers, The Epidemic Years from 1950 through 2000. Peter, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure, Peter. So for the sake of context for the rest of our conversation, what is a serial killer? Well, it depends who's doing the defining if we let the FBI be the clearinghouse for serial killers, at least in the United States, as of 2004, the FBI defines a serial killer as anyone who has killed two or more people in separate incidences for any reason. I was interested to learn that our instinct to kill goes back much further than I or I think a lot of other people even realize. And I know you explored this in depth in Sons of Cain, but what is a major factor in the survival of Homo sapiens over Neanderthals so many years ago? This is the speculation because, of course, we don't have a written record or television recordings or any kind of record of that time. We're talking about a prehistoric era. However, we know that we begin to kind of take the shape of human beings that interact with each other within a set of rules of morality and legality around 12, 15,000 years ago. So it's not that long ago. The hypothesis, why we prevailed as opposed to why the Neanderthal people prevailed, was necrophobia, fear of the dead. Essentially, it means that um, we began as Homo sapiens to be more inhibited against killing among ourselves and instead targeted only outsiders. I think that may, some suggest, be the difference between why Neanderthals who slaughtered each other as wantonly as they slaughtered, you know, Homo sapiens or other species, they essentially helped to kill each other off. Is that kind of genetic coding? Is that evolution? Is that God's hand? If you want to look at things in that way, we'll have to see as we watch the human species now evolve into this kind of civilized animal that we are. But there's a lot of that, that era left in us still. 
Well, you do a great job of covering the history of serial killers. Your primary focus here, obviously, as the subtitle suggests, is this epidemic from 1950 all the way through 2000. It's commonly believed that serial killers exhibit some similar qualities in terms of their upbringings when they're young. Did you find this to be true in all these serial killers that you've studied over time? In a lot of them, there is a familial breakdown. A lot of them have are rejected, actually, by other kids around them. And so, you know, what is it, the chicken or the egg that comes first? Is the child already going crazy and is evil or is showing non-empathy or inability to relate to other children and is kind of instinctually violent and clawing and biting? Or did something happen to them, some kind of traumatic event? Or was it a brain injury? We really still don't know. But statistically, a majority of serial killers, first of all, report that by the time they're 14, they have the father figures gone from their life. Either they were emotionally absent or they were, the father was violent and abusive or the father's just not there, gone. And they as well report a kind of very assertive mother as well, which makes sense. If the father's not there, the mother is going to be the assertive one. That's a common theme hmm. in serial killer kid biographies, as are frontal lobe head injuries, too, on top of that. So it's probably not any single thing, but I think the killing, raping, cannibalizing aspects of about serial killers is coming from that instinctual, uninhibited, as as, as you say, you know, parental, uh, familial upbringing. I think we're all born potentially serial killers as a human species, but good parenting gives us those inhibitions. You know, men are told that when you kill, you're killing to protect your family or your country. Reasons are given. So it's not like the killing instinct is completely weeded out of us. We're given, you know, kind of on and off switches that we're expected to know when to switch on, switch off. That's not the case often with these serial killers, they know what they're doing is wrong, but they don't have that switch or, or they don't care to throw the switch. Why were there a shocking number of notorious serial killers born in the 1940s and 50s? Yeah, that's the mystery, right? Ted Bundy was born in 1946. And Ted Bundy's existence, in a way, the parental connection, is a story of the war. It was an unknown GI in transit somewhere, or his grandfather was the other theory. But the war era, and, you know, that's the beginning. A lot of parents, you got to look at the parental generation of the Ted Bundys and, and again, John Wayne Gacy's and that generation, the post-war generation, you got to look at what was happening in the United States. You got to look at the condition that American GIs were in when they returned, especially from the Pacific and what was available to them, because that's the generation that's going to be raising and trying to keep a family together. And you can't also forget the huge impact that the Great Depression had. I mean, the Great Depression stripped a generation of males of their dignity. The pride you had in taking care of your family, being the bread earner, 
And there's a lot of men who couldn't take that. And they abandoned their families. They became this generation of derelicts that I saw as a kid growing up. You know, these guys were like hobos, but they had, you know, suits and ties on. There was a kind of a broken dignity to them. And that's a whole generation of American men from the 1930s. And therefore, assertive mothers who had to raise their kids on their own. And so that theme of the assertive mother that is so we hear so often in serial killer biographies, you know, it has to do with the negotiation of the male child from his mother. Every male child is born in this kind of intimate process with his mother, and he's got to get out of the slime and get up on his feet and start walking like a man, at least like a boy. And so if you have an assertive mother who begins to somehow constrict or restrict that negotiation, that male child, especially if it's a powerful male child, is going to develop a rage toward its mother. And of course, the tens of morality will say, you know, you have to respect your mother, love your mother. And so that rage begins to be directed at other women who are symbols of that rage. And, and some serial killers kill their mother. Henry Lee Lucas started off with first murdering his mother, Viola. And Edmund Kemper ended off with <laughs> killing his mother. Well, okay, she had a dinner guest. He killed her too along the way. But essentially, he wrapped it up with his mom. So it's not a sexist myth. I'm not saying, you know, like bad-mouthing mothers. Some Women put a more tighter grip on their uh, sons, and, and that's a theme that I do hear in these biographies. So the combinations of these things, the assertive mother, imagine how assertive mother had to be in the Depression. And then you have the next generation or the same generation that now goes off to war. That's Ed Kemper's story. You know, his mom, Clarnell, marries this heroic commando who's heading off to war, and he comes back a burnt-out, totally broken guy from all the heavy combat he had seen at Anzio. You know, he was in one of those elite units. We really underestimated the impact the Second World War psychologically had on our grandfathers and our fathers, because first of all, our perception of them often is colored by the fact that we were kids. And so maybe we didn't see exactly the damage. Secondly, we didn't have the benefit of the post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis that begins to come out in the wake of the Vietnam War. And so a lot of those guys were essentially taking out this trauma on their home lives, not only in terms of drinking as much as they were, but carrying out acts of physical violence on the rest of the family. Sometimes that too, but they were certainly emotionally often disconnected with their sons, with reality. We're talking about 37% of American ground combat troops deployed in World War II, 37% were sent home as neuropsychiatric casualties. They just couldn't take it anymore. That was the term. Wow. Neuropsychiatric casualties. So the account in 1946, Rand Corporation, in fact, Rand Corporation did this test in 2013. They did the study, the neuropsychiatrically impaired, 454,000 veterans. 
accounted for 30% of all service-connected active disability awards in 1946. 30%. My goodness. So, you know, they were given a medal and a parade and a GI Bill and then told to just suck it up in silence. And nobody wanted to hear it. Nobody was capable of understanding it. The way when we saw the Vietnam War on TV, for crying out loud, we kind of had, even though the full extent of what happened there didn't happen. So that generation kind of was more in shock. Um, and, And so you have a generation of kids not all of them, but you have a generation of kids, Dennis Radar, the BTK killer, Edmund Kemper, Arthur Shawcross, their dads were all U.S. Marine Corps, except for Kemper, were all in the U.S. Marine Corps in the Pacific and are very quickly absent in their son's life or become a source of kind of tension in it. Let's talk a little bit more about Ed Kemper. Obviously, he's regained a sort of notoriety through the excellent TV show Mindhunters. He admitted to the police after getting caught that when he picked up and killed his first two girls, he never touched them inappropriately, except when accidentally brushing the back of his hand on one of their breasts, something that he was still openly embarrassed about when talking about these killings to the police were these weird sorts of moral lines common among serial killers and if so why well they're not like us they have a whole different scale of what might be embarrassing or correct indeed i mean he was dismembering these women and in fact having sex with their heads their severed heads something that he did with his mom too correct yes yes in the end I almost don't remember whether he severed her head or he must have because he eventually threw her larynx into the garbage disposal and the garbage disposal jammed. And he famously commented, she's still nagging me even now. So that was his account where the girl was still alive as he was stabbing her and he accidentally brushed against her breast and he apologized for inappropriate touching. He described his killing as evicting the person from their body in order that he could do with their body what he sexually wanted to do. And so to touch a victim while they were alive, they were not evicted from their body, would, in his moral scale, would be an offensive thing to do. I've had a serial killer tell me that he would never stab his victims because it felt to him as if he was violating his victim. And for other serial killers, that's precisely why they stab. The stab becomes the kind of substitute for the penis, for the penetration. I mean, that, you know, that's old. You know, we've knew that since Jack the Ripper. But other serial killers, it's not about the killing. The killing is part of the process. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, for example, he didn't want to kill any of his victims. He only wanted to eat them. 
And so, you know, to get to that point, you, you know, you have to cut the chicken's head off, right? You're not exactly enjoying it. The enjoyment comes from preparing the chicken, plucking the feathers, buttering it up, getting it in the, the, the stove, just the right brown feeling, you know, cutting into that juicy chicken, you know, that's the part. The killing is just got to do it to get to that part. Speaking of Dahmer, he said that if he hadn't picked up his first victim, a hitchhiker named Stephen Mark Hicks in June of 1978, he wouldn't have become a serial killer, which feels pretty far-fetched on its surface. But then again, he didn't kill again until 1987. From that point on, there were 16 victims. Do you agree with this window of opportunity theory with Dahmer specifically and also in general with regard to serial killers? I do in the case of Dahmer, because Dahmer is struggling throughout his life not to do it again. If we accept Dahmer's claims, and everybody was looking for those victims you know, when he served in the army, when he was overseas in Germany. It was looked into whether there's any loose killings that could be linked to him, and nothing comes up except for this one story where Dahmer assaulted another soldier in, in, inside a tank, I think it was, made a, you know, a sexual assault on him, and that's entirely possible, right? Because, you know, Dahmer was who he said he was and who he knew he was. Whether he was trying to kill him or not is a whole other question. But Dahmer, before he began killing, he was substituting people with a mannequin and sleeping with a mannequin. That's what he wanted. He wanted for some object of his love to remain with him. And it was a human that he wanted, a male human. And he... Remember also that part where he attempted to zombify one of his victims not to kill them. You know, he injected their brain with battery acid using a turkey baster in the hope that they wouldn't have to die. So in the way that Kemper was evicting people from their bodies, Dahmer wanted to kind of evict part of them, the part of them that gave them the autonomy to get up and leave him and go. And so he would have preferred that all the other parts lived. Kemper described his murders as making dolls. That's what he was doing. He was making dolls out of the bodies of these women. He didn't need them. In fact, he commented, he said, you know, yeah, but it's not quite the same because all their personality is gone once I cut their head off. And it didn't matter to him. And so Dahmer has this guilt about doing what he's doing there's remorse and it's it's destroying him in the end the end of Dahmer uh, he's in this apartment now the management is telling him he's going to get evicted because the smell is coming from there he's got those tubs of pickled parts of corpses in the fridge as well and just the day before he was showering with a corpse hung in the in the shower, dripping dry, and as he was draining it, it's like something out of one of those 1950 harm comics that they banned eventually. I mean, this is really ghoulish stuff. And he's dissolving, he's breaking, he's killing them as well now. 
God, he gained the numbers, but it was like four or five in the last six weeks of his, if not less than that, even just before he's apprehended. And he ended up getting apprehended because he got so sloppy that somebody was actually able to escape his apartment as they were surrounded by this utterly grisly scene that you just described. Yes, that's right. Many of those victims aren't even known to be missing, so nobody has any sense that there's a serial killer out there. Uh, kind of in the same with my guy, my serial killer, Richard Cottingham. He gets caught torturing a woman in a, in a motel, and when they start looking at kind of all the other murders that happened in the vicinity of the motel on top of him leaving a body under a bed two weeks earlier in the same place. And three years before that, a body in the parking lot of the motel. Once they look and pull all the threads, they go, my God, you know, this is a serial killer, although they didn't have that word then. So the same thing with Dahmer. It was this kind of event. And it's because both Richard Cottingham and Jeffrey Dahmer got sloppy in the way Ted Bundy did in Florida. When you think of how meticulous all these guys were prior, at the moment of their apprehensions, the ones that kind of stumble into an apprehension are now kind of these kinds of lurching, blind monsters that are nothing like the meticulous predators they had been when they were starting out. So some guys have a capacity to just retire when they reach that stage, because that's what's happening to, I think, Bundy, probably to Cottingham, although he won't admit to it, and certainly to Ed Kemper. In the end, they've reached the apex and they've realized it, and there's nowhere to go. And so the ones that still have some kind of self-worth attached to something else like Dennis Radar, the BTK killer, you know, he still was an inspector, bylaw officer. So they retire until DNA catches up to them, science caught up to them. But if not for DNA, so many of these guys would walk away. The others melt down and are, let's say, these kind of raging, almost rampage serial killers in the final months or weeks of their career. Dahmer certainly is that. And he's cornered. You know, he doesn't know where to go now because he's got to take all that stuff with him to a new place. And he's in no state of mind to even, he just got fired at the chocolate factory where he was working as well. So he's got no place to go, no money to live on. And he's cornered and he's got these dead bodies stacking up and he can't even buy any more chemical drums to store them in. Some he's eating, but it's a lot of bodies in there. So Dahmer was caught in 1991, which was also the year that the classic movie Silence of the Lambs came out. Why was the FBI so enthusiastic to work with the Hollywood studio and filmmakers responsible for this classic? Well, first of all, of course, the FBI took a huge beating after the Vietnam War, after the Nixon years and all the civil liberties investigations and congressional hearings that took place, not only the FBI, but the CIA as well, right? And some of the worst paranoid stories that we thought were fiction turned out to be true. And so the FBI had a bad reputation with the 60s generation, which by the 1990s was wealthy and powerful and somewhere in Congress and so forth. 
the FBI, when we began to see this surge of serial killers in the previous decade, in the 80s, there was this panic over missing children, because certainly in the 70s, a lot of kids hit the road, you know, the hippie generation, the summer of love starting in, you know, 66 and that period. And, and some went missing and it became a thing. And so by the 80s, there's this fear that there's serial predators abducting children. There's news of serial killers like Bundy. Jurisdictions are not talking to each other. That's a old bureaucratic issue. You know, 9-11 was because the CIA and the FBI, the bureaucracies were more rivals than partners. And that still is the same today in many places in law enforcement. And, and so the FBI presented itself kind of in the way they did back in the 30s to fight bandits, Bonnie and Clyde and Machine Gun Kelly generation. The FBI presented itself as a federal clearinghouse for serial killings, particularly those that are as well targeting children. And so because they're this federal agency, they had a psychological unit, the behavioral sciences unit, which began originally to analyze the behavior of hostage takers and hijackers and eventually evolved as well profiling potential assassins, presidential protection, and a group out of there began to see as well this rise in serial murders, although they didn't call it that, but multiple murders that they think are being committed across many jurisdictions by the same perpetrator, which is exactly what Ted Bundy turned out to be. So by the 1980s, these guys are all before Congress asking for millions of dollars to set up a central database on all unsolved murders in the United States that can match this mind hunter structure of profile and things that serial killers ritually do that you can statistically analyze. So we're getting a picture of a certain species of type that we did not recognize previously. And the word serial killer as well ends our, enters our vocabulary. And once we have that, we have a species. Once we have the word, the word gets popularized. New York Times publishes it for the first time that construct serial murderer, serial killer in uh, May of 1981 to describe Wayne Williams, the Atlanta child murderer. And so that word gets popularized. And so 1990, when Jonathan Demme wants to make this film, the FBI there was controversy whether profiling really works or not, and what is it exactly. And, you know, we discovered, for example, that, you know, most child abductions are carried out by someone who is known to the family or a family member, not serial killing strangers. That was so interesting. And by the way, that same thing still exists today with something like an Amber Alert, which on its surface is serious, but then you read the details of a lot of these alerts, and it usually turns out to be one deadbeat parent or family member taking that child from another. That too. But if we just forget abductions, but child murders, child murders usually occur at the hands of a family member or someone close to the family. So abductions apart, right? Just the deaths of the kids too. So um, the FBI thought this would be good PR for what 
the behavioral sciences unit does, right? And so they cooperated with it. And in some ways, it was great PR, but then it backfired in the FBI's face when instead of, you know, Jodie Foster, Special Agent Clarice Starling becoming the hero, it's the cannibal who we all love, you know, Anthony Hopkins' portrayal of Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter. <laughs> Everybody wanted to have dinner with the cat, as long as you're not on the on the menu. Right? <laughs> um, he was charming. He was, uh, you know, witty and smart, and people were rooting for him. You know, you start feeling he's in this poor cage, and you know, the psychiatric the psychiatrists are always the villains, and I think rightly so too in serial killer histories. They're always the guys that let them go. This guy's kind of the opposite. He, he's you know torturing poor Hannibal Lecter, and you're rooting for him. And so serial killers, these celebrity fictional serial killers, are beginning to emerge as you know, are anti-heroes in, in, in a way, rebels. And certainly the FBI didn't intend to do that. But somewhere I read an account that the FBI had a, a conference somewhere. They were presenting what they were doing. And at the conference, they had cutouts of the Hannibal Lecter character at this convention rather than, you know, Jodie Foster, the FBI agent. So... It did backfire, but it also made serial killers into these, um, you know, celebrities, certain of them, you know, Ted Bundy, uh, Richard Ramirez, Ed Kemper, to a great extent, became these cult figures and still are. If you look at Netflix, there's nothing about new serial killers there. It's It's all these retold horror fairy tales being told to a new generation. I mean, a lot of the viewers weren't even born when, you know, Ted Bundy was executed. So this is as new to them as it was to my generation when, when this was happening. Peter, is there anything that symbolizes the end of this epidemic, which according to your book runs from 1950 to 2000? You know, this couple of things, certainly the um, O.J. Simpson trial signals maybe not so much the end of the epidemic itself, but the kind of what Harold Schechter described, the golden age of serial murder. Jeffrey Dahmer, I end with Jeffrey Dahmer kind of as our last celebrity surge era serial killer, because shortly after that, the nature of television certainly changes in the media and press and newspapers. And we have a new thing is, of course, celebrity killers who already are celebrities before they kill. And of course, O.J. Simpson becomes this kind of hot zone of everything. Then we had a general decline in homicide overall. And I think correspondingly to that, we get a decline in serial killers. We got better at anticipating them and recognizing them. Linkage blindness, it's still a problem, but not to the extent it used to be. So when we arrest serial killers today, the average number of their victims is significantly lower than it was in the 1980s, for example. And we're catching them earlier. And, of course, DNA evidence, we're catching up with a lot of the guys who took advantage of that era, the, the surge years. Um, 
and we're caching a lot of them. And you see, you know, cell phones, of course, the whole nature of a serial homicide investigation is about tying together a number of victims to a single perpetrator. And so cell phones, even if the perpetrator is, which many of them are, as police say, forensically aware, and so they'll leave their cell phone behind or, or they'll use a burner that can be linked to them, the victims, their cell phones yield incredible amount of data, along with all the ubiquitous video surveillance systems. You know, at some point you can watch on video to where they go home. They get caught. I mean, that's how the BTK killer, the first time they got a glimpse of him was from Home Depot surveillance camera in the parking lot when he was dumping one of his messages in the 2000s. They saw that he had a, a pickup truck and they saw that he was a white male, right? They got the model of the pickup truck. Yeah, there were like maybe 70,000 registered in the Kansas City area. But then he makes the mistake. He sends them a, a floppy disk. And so they pull off the floppy disk, the metadata, and they see that it was a computer at a uh, you know Lutheran church where they come up with the name and address of the church elder. And they drive by his house and they see the same goddamn pickup truck sitting there in his drive. Right? Wow. And, and from that point on, they knew they had him. All they had to do was now just get the right evidence together. And that's how he went down. You know, his mistake. But the data was there and the video surveillance data just, you know, it's everywhere. So credit card data is hard for serial perpetrators to clean up the crumbs they leave behind. I mean, you're on videotape even before you think of committing a crime. You know, mm -hmm. you're going to rob a bank, right? You maybe have walked by that bank and kind of looked at it 15 times before on the 16th time you thought, oh, I'm going to rob this bank. Well, it's too late. You're already on the video just as an average citizen. So it's getting harder. It's getting harder for them to commit these kinds of multiple murders. They're getting caught earlier and profiling helps as well. I mean, you see references in the press to wannabe serial killers. We pretty much have a good idea of their profile and behavioral history to anticipate that if this guy with this kind of history murdered once in this kind of way, probably he would have murdered a second or a third time, but they bungle the first one. They get arrested. You serve a search warrant on their home and you find all the serial killer literature, forensic literature on investigating serial killers, serial killer movies and DVDs. And they're just like totally into it. They're studying it. These are literally wannabe serial killers who are idiots and then bungle the first one and they're down. They're gone. And had they not bungled it, maybe they would have killed a second and a third and a fourth you know, before they get caught. Mm. So that, I think, has to do with the decline of serial killers now um, until recently. Final question, Peter. You described the perfect storm that created this 50-year epidemic of serial killers, some of which we've gotten into over the last hour. Does anything lead you to believe that we could soon be embarking on another serial killer epidemic? Yeah, that's my fear. If my hypothesis is correct on at least the combination of the Great Depression and the trauma of the 
Second World War than the triple hit now we've taken. Because a lot has happened since Sons of Cain came out two years ago. And my new book, American Serial Killers, that just came out now. We have, first of all, certainly the 2008 Great Depression devastated millions of families. Done. Just the way the Great Depression of the 1930s did. Secondly, the war on terror, just by its nature, is a clandestine war. We talked about Vietnam, but in the way we didn't talk about the brutality of the Second World War, we did not talk and still cannot talk simply by the clandestine nature of this war, of the brutality of the war on terror, not only being fought by a generation of fathers, but as well a generation of mothers now too. And so that's the second factor. And of course, what the COVID thing is going to do to a generation of kids as well and everything economically and psychologically that emerges out of it, you know, it's not looking good. Um, if my hypothesis is correct, I mean, it's looking actually worse than the American war that followed the Second World War, the 1950s and 60s, that whole thing. And as well as a kind of an internal stability that, you know, I grew up in the 60s. I was a kid, but something about the civil disorder at that time seemed to be more limited than the one I feel now that is facing us, the kind of differences, even in the division of Congress. Congress clearly saw a difference between a president and Congress. There was a line, and that brought Nixon down. There's a deeper division here now, and as well, access to our information. You know, we have people that back then, we had all media at the same time coming at us from very few sources with a lot of gatekeepers. There are no gatekeepers anymore. And so people have chosen alternative realities that they choose to believe because they want to. And that's human nature as well. You just want to confirm that what you already believe is true. And so you're getting sucked up into this black hole by whatever side you take. And so it makes a division deeper. And so I'm worried about the future in the context of that and the rage that is around the children who are growing up right now, our children, because the only way to change things, of course, is to take care of the children who be the custodians, who are the custodians of our future. And I'm not happy with the world the way it is. And I would like for my children not to do the things we did to make the world the way it is. And I'm not, you know, like optimistic and serial killers are very rare, but a high presence of serial killers is, a, is also a symptom of other things as well that are not good for us. Hmm. For all that we talk about serial killers and all this reporting and movies on them, they're statistically a very rare phenomenon. You know, we've in the 20th century, we had max in the United States, maybe 3,500 serial killers. Yeah, that's a lot, 3,500. But in, if you look at how many millions of murderers we have, then it's a drop in the bucket. But it is symptomatic of bad times and things to 
often after the bad times, kind of the result of the bad times. So the future, if my hypothesis is correct about World War II and the Depression, we've got some bad stuff coming at us in about 15, 20 years. Oh, that's scary to think about. He is Peter Vronsky, Ph.D., an investigative historian and former film and television documentary producer. He's the author of Serial Killers, Female Serial Killers, and Sons of Cain, a book that traces the history of serial killers going back to the Stone Age. His newest, the one we've been talking about today, is titled American Serial Killers, The Epidemic Years, 1950 through 2000. Peter, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Trey, thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. And thanks to you for listening. Please check us out at booksonpod.com. You can hear all of our episodes there, as well as subscribe to this podcast via Apple, Spotify, and plenty of other platforms. And if you are on Apple Podcasts, I greatly appreciate if you enjoy this show, leaving a five-star rating and review. It helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. <laughs>